0: Issues of property. Property. And what about the economy? What is ownership? Is this appropriate? Goods, properties, commodification, ownership, property. Hello, and welcome to Appropriate, the podcast of the Collaborative Research Center Structural Change of Property. My name is Charlotte and today's episode is the third and final part of the Global Commons and their Discontents mini-series and will again be hosted by Alexandra Ehresmann from the Junior Research Project 1 called The Transformation of Global Commons and the Future of Planetary Ecosystems. If you haven't already, go check out the first two episodes of this mini-series, which introduce the topic of Global Commons and dive deeper into a specific example of one, the deep seabed. Today's episode is about another form of global commons, carbon sink. Let's hear what Alexandra has to say about the topic and the expert Megan Blomfield.
1: Thanks again, Charlada. In our final episode, we hear from Dr. Megan Blomfield, a senior lecturer in political philosophy at the University of Sheffield. Her research concerns global justice and the environment, focusing on the problem of climate change. Climate change can be understood as a problem stemming from both the overuse of fossil fuels and the depletion of carbon sinks like the atmosphere, but also ocean and land-based sinks. In her 2019 book, Global Justice, Natural Resources and Climate Change, Blomfield argues that by considering what the world would look like if natural resources were shared fairly, we can better understand the problem of climate change and some of the ethical challenges that it raises. Since finishing the book, Blomfield has turned her attention to the topic of land rights and a in a changing climate. This leads us to the topic of today's episode, carbon sinks as global commons. Within the climate change discourse, it's widely agreed that the atmosphere and its sequestration of greenhouse gas emissions can be viewed as a global commons and that this designation could lead to an equitable solution to this global problem. However, Bloomfield will show us that this conception isn't so straightforward when we consider carbon sinks more widely. Let's hear from Megan Bloomfield on how the designation of a space or resource as a global commons can present both opportunities and challenges.
2: One of the main things I'm going to suggest in this paper is that focusing on the atmosphere as a relevant global commons when we're thinking about climate change is a little bit misleading. So rather than talking about the atmosphere as a global commons, I'm going to be focusing on carbon sinks more generally as a global commons and explaining why It isn't just the atmosphere that we need to be considering. And actually, some of the resources that are relevant to the climate problem, the designation of the global commons isn't such an obvious fit. So the reason that I got into thinking about the global commons as a philosopher, I think they don't come up in philosophy and normative political theory a huge amount. But one place that the global commons does come up a lot has been in a particular argument in the climate justice literature. And this is sort of going back (laughs) over a decade now. But quite a lot of early treatments of climate justice in political philosophy and ethics were very focused on the question of how rights to emit greenhouse gases should be allocated. So they kind of started from the idea that obviously to deal with climate change, we need to drastically limit greenhouse gas emissions. That turns greenhouse gas emissions or the the license to emit into a scarce resource. And then you straight away get this question of how that scarce resource should be shared. So a distributive justice question. And that takes you into theories of distributive justice that philosophers have to hand. So I think there was kind of an obvious thing for philosophers to focus on because there's already quite a lot of tools for thinking about distributive justice. And here's a new distributive problem that we've just recognised, this new scarce resource. And that's partly a question that we need to answer going forward. Obviously, we need to think about when we're restricting future emissions, how that restricted budget should be shared. But you can also think that it's an important question looking backwards, because if we can figure out what a fair share of greenhouse gas emissions would be, some people hope you can then look back and identify who's emitted more than their fair share and therefore might have duties to compensate for their excessive use. So in trying to answer this question, one very common argument you get is what I've termed the atmospheric commons argument. This argument basically tries to defend equal per capita emission rights. So the idea would be that, you know, you identify this pot of remaining emissions that we can share. And what you do is you hand it out so that every individual in the world can emit an equal amount. More practically speaking, you'd probably distribute the remaining emissions budget to countries on the basis of their population size. But the idea is every individual in the world has an entitlement to emit the same amount as everyone else within that remaining limited budget. And one way that lots of philosophers have tried to defend that conclusion, and not actually just in philosophy, you see this argument popping up in other disciplines and in the public sphere, was to try and map that distribution problem of emissions onto what it into a problem of distributing the atmosphere, basically. So they start by drawing an equivalence between an emissions right and a right to use the atmosphere by saying that really what you're distributing when you distribute emissions quotas is a use right to the atmosphere. Right, as a resource system that we want to dump our greenhouse gas emissions into. So when you're given that emission quota, right, your, your entitlement, what you're being given is an entitlement of sort of a restricted use of the atmosphere. And so that, the, the claim goes, is what we're carving up when we carve up emission rights. This is then followed by the observation that the atmosphere is a global commons, which I think lots of people just draw from, like we've already seen in previous papers, In the imaginary, the atmosphere is one of the classic examples of a global commons There then follows this normative claim that because the atmosphere is a global commons, everyone has an equal claim to it. The idea is that there's supposed to be this kind of symmetry of claims when it comes to the atmosphere. People will say things like, you know, nobody is responsible for having made it. Nobody is like in a privileged relationship with respect to the atmosphere. It's just out there for us to use. No one can claim that they have kind of like a birthright to use more of it than other people. There are equal claims to this resource. That means that when we're sharing out rights to the atmosphere, we should share them equally. There should be equal rights to use the atmosphere. And because by emitting greenhouse gases, that's what you're doing. You're using the atmosphere. Emission quotas should also be equal. So it's supposed to be a fairly straightforward argument. People hope for getting a conclusion of equal per capita emission quotas. What we're doing when we share these things out is sharing the atmosphere. It's a global commons that no one has a privileged claim to. There's a kind of symmetry. It belongs to all of us. So the straightforward answer is that you just get an equal emissions entitlement. So I got quite interested in this argument and trying to figure out whether it really is so obvious that this is what's going on when we talk about the emissions distribution question. And as we've also seen people talk about in previous sessions, part of the issue here is that global commons is quite a slippery concept. And in quite a few of these arguments, people don't actually really specify what they mean by saying that the atmosphere is a global commons. And then when you try to build this equality claim on top of that, it's not entirely clear why the fact that the atmosphere is a global commons means that it should be shared equally, because it's not clear what it means to call it a global commons in the first place. So I think there's quite a few things that could be going on in this argument. It actually seems to deploy several senses of the global commons. One sense is a kind of resources sense. So again, this has come up for the idea of um, the atmosphere as a common pool resource. So here we can refer to Ostrom's definition of what a common pool resource is. It's a resource system that produces resource units, right? Things that we're interested in appropriating. Those resource units might be renewable to some extent, but they're ultimately exhaustible, right? You can use them up. It's also characterized by rivalness. So what I use subtracts from your ability to use it. Fisheries are a much kind of more easy example to see that in, right? When I pull some fish out of the sea, they're no longer available for you to go and fish them instead. And there's a difficulty of exclusion. So it's hard to prevent people from appropriating these resource units from the commons. And this is what creates a problem with common pool resources. There's a danger of overuse and ultimate exhaustion of these resource units because it's not infinitely renewable you can run out when I take some there's less left for everybody else same for you you go appropriate some of the resource units there's even less but it's hard to stop anybody from doing that and in the end you might end up with nothing left I think when people talk about global CPRs or common pool resources they're not always entirely clear what makes this a global common pool resource system in my mind I think probably. One way that we might try and distinguish between global CPRs and more local CPRs is that it's a question of how big this pool of appropriators is. A local commons, like a water basin, right, you're, you all want to extract from a groundwater source or a well of some kind. In that case, it might be that there's quite a limited pool of appropriators that want to extract water. Might still be so many people that you're in danger of exhausting the water supply, but it's not as if you're kind of concerned. Let's say it's a water basin somewhere in California, you're not struggling to exclude appropriators from the United Kingdom or elsewhere in the world. There's a kind of limited set of appropriators that are difficult to exclude. And I take it for global common pool resources, one of the big challenges is that actually that pool of appropriators is global. And that is what's supposed to be the case when we're talking about the atmosphere the atmosphere described as this kind of global common pool resource system, the idea is that the atmosphere is kind of like a distinctive sort of resource where the the units we want to extract from it, they're not actually kind of things like fish or water. What we're really extracting is like waste capacity. So the atmosphere has a limited capacity of like waste disposal units, let's say. When I dump my greenhouse gases in there, I'm like extracting that waste capacity in a sense. By doing so, mean, there's less waste capacity left for everybody else. So there's the kind of rivalness aspect, right? The, The ability of the atmosphere to have this waste assimilation capacity extracted is ultimately limited. It can't take all the waste we want to dump into it without having disastrous impacts. But the difficulty of exclusion that arises here is truly global, because it's difficult to stop anybody from dumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. I mean, nigh on impossible, basically. You can sort of reduce people's access to fossil fuels, but I'm, I'm in a sense, kind of appropriating from the atmospheric sink at the moment by breathing, right? Breathing out CO2. Most of the things I do in my daily life also end up with some CO2 being dumped into the atmosphere. The same goes for people all over the world. And you can't like put a fence around the atmosphere that would stop people from being able to do that. So I think that's what they have in mind. One of the things that's in mind in this argument, particularly in premise one, right? That when you're distributing emissions quotas, you're distributing entitlements to take these resource units of like waste disposal capacity out of the atmospheric resource system. So that's one of the kind of things I think that people are saying when they describe the atmosphere as a global commons. It's a bit like a fishing ground, right? But what we're taking is waste disposal capacity rather than like a fish or or a more tangible resource unit. Another thing that I think people are also drawing on this in this argument, though, is a more legalistic notion of what the global commons is. So this is the kind of classic idea of it being a resource system beyond state jurisdiction. People aren't always explicit that this is one of the things going on when they call the atmosphere a global commons, but I think it's there in the background It's part of what's supposed to make it so plausible that it's a thing that we have equal claims to, right? Nobody has a better claim to it than anybody else. It's not within any state's jurisdiction. It's supposed to be beyond state claims. I think the reason that the atmosphere gets Put in that kind of classic list of what counts as a global commons is this usually, right? It's beyond state jurisdiction, similar to the high seas or the, the ocean floor. But then there's another thing I think going on when the atmosphere is called a global commons in this argument, which is a kind of ethical claim. The idea here is that when you describe something as a global commons, you're kind of making a claim about how it ought to be shared. So there's a kind of idea that as a global commons, things that are global commons, things that belong to all of us. There's a kind of equality of claims to them. So these three things could come apart, right? Describing something as a global common pool resource is kind of a factual claim. You're just trying to say something about the characteristics of the resource system. And from that, it doesn't really follow that it should be a global commons in a legal or an ethical sense. You could think that global common pool resources ought to be privatized or brought within state jurisdictions. Similarly, if something is a commons in a legal sense, it doesn't necessarily follow that it's something that we ought to all share equally. Just because it's beyond state jurisdiction at the moment doesn't mean that it has to remain so, right? So there's this argument is kind of running together these three understandings of the global commons, but it's not clear that they have to stay together in that way. And I think that's one of the problems that arises when you start to kind of push on that atmospheric commons argument. And you can also kind of Question each of these claims about the atmosphere as a global commons and what follows from it. So, one big problem I think that arises when we're talking about the global commons in this resource sense, as like a global common pool resource, is that there is a sense in which the atmosphere is a global common pool resource, particularly for methane, which is one of the important greenhouse gases. Methane does get destroyed in the atmosphere largely through atmospheric reactions. So, when we dump methane in the atmosphere, A bit of it gets removed by soil, I believe, but like most of it, it just eventually reacts with other atmospheric gases into something that's not as bad for the climate change problem. But carbon dioxide, which is the most important greenhouse gas we need to worry about, it's not assimilated by the atmosphere. It just sort of hangs around in the atmosphere until it's removed by sinks. So the CO2 that we dump up there, the atmosphere, we're not really appropriating from the atmosphere's capacity when we do that what we're ultimately appropriating is other sinks like the ocean and, and forests forests are kind of like the most obvious example that people talk about the co2 just stays there it's like the atmosphere isn't a assimilation system for it it's just a container so this kind of first premise of the argument that's trying to equate distributing emissions quotas to distributing rats to so the atmosphere kind of goes a bit awry straight away because the atmosphere is not the only relevant common pool resource for CO2 assimilation, which is the main thing that we're concerned about because CO2 is the biggest problem for climate change. I think we can kind of push back on the other claims about the atmosphere as a global commons too. So. The idea of the atmosphere being beyond state jurisdiction, it's not entirely clear that's strictly true, like there are airspace laws, some people will claim that the other dimensions of the atmosphere, reasons we want to use it for travel, maybe some bits that people do have a stronger claim to than others, and it is within certain state jurisdictions. But most kind of relevant for my purpose is what the kind of normative and ethical aspect of this argument that I'm interested in even if the atmosphere is a global commons in a legal sense and is something that we would all have equal claims to, because we're not just using the atmosphere when we dump greenhouse gases up there, it doesn't follow that you should have equal emissions entitlements because to show that you need to show that we should also be sharing the ocean equally, the forests equally, the soils equally, right, that are doing the work of pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. So which common pool resource system are we actually talking about in the case of climate change? As I've sort of gestured to already, really, our greenhouse gas emissions are assimilated by a bigger system than the atmosphere on its own. We're talking about atmospheric sinks, yes, um, particularly for something like methane. We're also talking about the ocean and what are now commonly referred to as land sinks. If we were just relying on the atmosphere, climate change would be radically worse already if all of the CO2 we would dumped up there was still there. We'd be in like absolutely dire trouble. So the reason that it's not that bad is because the ocean and the land sinks have pulled, forgotten the statistic for now, but like approaching half of it out of the atmosphere already. So we've been massively dependent on these other sinks. So if we want to now defend equal emission quotas, we're kind of making a claim that there should be equal sharing of all of these things, right? Not just the atmosphere's role, but we also need to be sharing the ocean sinks equally equally. And we also need to be sharing use rights in these land sinks equally. And I think it's going to be harder, right, to show that these are things that we should share equally. Because I think lots of people find that intuitive for the atmosphere because it is that thing out there that like people feel, well, yeah, of course, I don't have a privileged claim to the atmosphere. I have a relationship to the atmosphere that's the same as every other human being. But if you're talking about forests, then we have very different relationships with the different forests of the world. And some states have much bigger forested areas than others, much more significant sinks within their territory. So people do sometimes make this kind of claim that like, you know, the Amazon rainforest belongs to all of us. It belongs to all of humanity. It's the lungs of the world and it's kind of, it's ours, right? It doesn't just belong to countries like Brazil. But that's a more controversial claim to be making than the atmospheric claim, I think. So I think there's a big question about whether the ethical commons claim is going to stand up if we're talking about this whole greenhouse gas assimilation system, right? So this being the claim that it belongs to all of us and we should share it equally. So like I said, lots of people seem to find this, they're sympathetic with this claim when it comes to the atmosphere. I think some people, quite a lot of people are sympathetic with it when it comes to the ocean. And then that's partly because they... Fall under this list of legal global commons, right? Beyond state jurisdiction, something that humanity should share. And like equality seems like a good sharing principle. But it's much less plausible, I think, for the land sink that there isn't like a we don't have different differentiated and privileged relationships to the parts of the land sink that are doing a lot of work in pulling greenhouse gas emissions out of the atmosphere. So I think this is kind of just to say that. The atmospheric commons argument as it was originally presented distracts us from the fact that some of the really difficult questions that are going to arise when we talk about limiting and sharing greenhouse gas emissions are questions about who should get to use forests to mop up their greenhouse gas emissions. And it is totally going to be a question that we have to answer because efforts towards net zero make this obvious. The idea isn't that we stop emitting greenhouse gases altogether. People recognise that there are going to be hard hard sectors where it's really difficult to do without them. And then the hope is that you, you, know, you can still dump some CO2 in the atmosphere as long as you're also at the same time maintaining sinks, like forests, that will pull an equivalent amount out, right? So it's not total zero, it's net zero. You can dump stuff in as long as you're removing it again. And then the question is, okay, well, who can point at a forest and say, well, that's, I'm going to use that to offset my emissions? Obviously, countries with big forests are going to hope they can do that and say well technically we're net zero right because yeah sure we're still burning some fossil fuels but we've got a huge forest sink that's removing at least that much but there's a question right why do you get to claim that forest as your own is it just because it's in your territory already or do we need to have you know does it need to be that you actually planted it especially for that purpose could you go plant forests on someone else's land and say that they're cleaning up your greenhouse gas emissions and look there are lots of other kind of land-based mitigation technologies that people want to roll out that are going to use land and then there's a question of, like, who gets to say when they are using land to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere that, like, that's, that goes on their ledger, right? That's their credit. And then it gives them an entitlement to carry on emitting to a certain extent. And I'm not going to really get into those questions because I think they're just very difficult. But what I'm going to finish by noting is that one thing that started to happen recently, and I think because of, like, recognition of the role that land is playing in the problem of climate change, is that people in a couple of places have started to talk about land as a potential global commons which is obviously a bit new, right, because it's not on the classic list. I guess the land of Antarctica sometimes appears on there, but that's like a specific landmass. Land in general is not usually thought of as one of these global commons, but I've seen this claim pop up in a couple of places. One is in a 2017 article in Nature by Philip Kruitzig that has been cited a lot already. One is in this report by the German Advisory Council on Global Change They also describe land as a global commons that should be the subject of equitable and sustainable sharing. And I think the motives behind this move are like they're good ones, right? People want to bring land within the sphere of the global commons because there is this idea in the background of the global commons as being like, you know, it's a a positive designation. It means it's something that we need to be thinking about sharing fairly and sustainably. I think it's also happening because of this recognition of land as a global common pool resource in a sense, right? So I think that we can, to some extent, conceptualise land as a global common pool resource with this recognition, right, of the role that is playing in the problem of climate change. There are new scientific understandings of land, not as just this kind of like material on which we walk and build and, right, grow our crops, but also as a biogeochemical resource system that's interacting with other parts of the climate system, right? The land is interacting with the atmosphere and CO2 is cycling between these two parts of the earth system. And as a sink for greenhouse gases, land is a common pool resource, right? It is still a resource system that produces this valuable good for us, right? Greenhouse gas sequestration capacity, but it doesn't do so in an unlimited way, right? The capacity of the land to remove CO2 from the atmosphere is ultimately limited. There's only a certain amount that it can do. You can increase it right, by planting more forests and stuff like that, but it's not going to be infinite. So when I'm dumping CO2 in the atmosphere and the land sink is helping remove it, that reduces its capacity to remove somebody else's emissions from the atmosphere. And again, it's really difficult to exclude anybody. Right, There's this global exclusion problem. Because you can't stop people dumping greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, you also can't stop them from using that lancing, right, which will eventually pull maybe quite like a significant proportion of their emissions back out and cycle it through again. So I think part of the reason that there's this move to think about land as a global commons is this recognition that it is a sort of global common pool resource system, but also this motive of like, you know, maybe it's, it's good to start thinking about fair and sustainable sharing of the land. Obviously, though, in a legal sense, like I said, it's not a good fit, right? The legal sense of a global commons is beyond state jurisdiction. Almost all of the land in the world is well within state jurisdiction. And I really think that's very unlikely to change. But this ethical claim about land being a global commons in the sense that it's something that belongs to all of us and we should share equally, I think we actually have a few reasons to be slightly worried about in the land case. I'm very conflicted because I can see the appeal of describing something as a global commons. But I also have some concerns how the global commons can be a kind of appropriative move or designating something a global commons can be an appropriative move. So is designating land a global commons going to help our efforts to promote justice? I think actually it sounds really nice, right? The idea of land as a global commons that belongs to all of us and that we need to kind of find a way to share across humanity. I can totally see the temptation of thinking about land that way, but I think that we need to consider how that designation will play in our existing circumstances, where I think actually the prospects for sharing land equally do not look, in some kind of equitable sense, do not look very good, right? So we're living in a world where lots of people are already vulnerable to land grabbing, lots of people with very insecure land tenure who are at risk of losing their land. Is calling land a global commons going to help those people? I think we might question whether it will, right? Because the idea of land as a global commons doesn't say, you know, we need to protect these localized land rights of people who use the land but have insecure tenure. It focuses much more on the kind of claims that we all have to land at the global level, right? For example, as a sink for our greenhouse gas emissions. So I would worry that what you actually might get if we start talking about land more as a global commons is an undermining of local rights. And that it seems like a concept that could be quite misused by international agencies that are kind of saying, well, you know, because the land belongs to all of us, you might have to move out of the way because we need to plant more forests to deal with this common concern of climate change that humanity is facing. Right. So I would worry that actually thinking of land as a global commons might make it easier to frame local communities as kind of blocking globally advantageous use of land and undermining the kind of claims that we have to use it as a global resource for, for example, mopping up greenhouse gas emissions. I don't think you get similar concerns in the atmospheric case, right? So calling the atmosphere a global commons, it doesn't really threaten any local rights, because airspace rights are so deeply entrenched, right? There's no chance that even if everyone starts thinking about the atmosphere as a global commons and it becomes a very powerful imaginary, it's not going to undermine airspace laws, realistically, I don't think. Whereas I think if everyone starts thinking about land as a global commons, there probably is more of a risk that local rights that are already insecure could be unsettled by that designation. So I think one of the questions that we basically face is like to what extent land can be understood as a global commons at the same time as we understand it as an important local commons, that lots of communities need stronger and more stable rights over. So I'm just going to
1: leave with that as a kind of question. Thank you. Thank you so much to Megan Bloomfield for her enlightening contributions to the workshop and this podcast. With climate change being one of the most pressing issues of today, the discussion on how we use and share carbon sinks like the atmosphere, but also the ocean and land-based sinks is critical. Because the sharing of natural resources, including carbon sinks, is often a challenge that can result in unjust distribution and overuse, the Global Commons approach of equitable sharing and joint management seemed like it could be a helpful alternative. However, Bloomfield has clearly shown us the challenges and risks associated with doing so, which leaves us with more questions than answers in terms of how we can sustainably and justly use and manage Earth's carbon sinks and halt the progression of climate change. Is there a way to designate carbon sinks as a global commons without it resulting in neocolonial appropriation and the violation of existing rights? Or should we explore other approaches? If so, what alternatives are there? These are critical questions that we hope to explore and dig deeper on going forward.
0: Thanks very much, Alexandra, for hosting this interesting episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was the last episode of our mini-series about global comments. If you liked it, follow this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website or follow us on Twitter. If you have some feedback for us, please write us on Twitter or to our email. It's in the show notes. Have a nice day and goodbye. Appropriate. Diese podcast entsteht im Rahmen des Sonderforschungsbereichs Transregio 294 Strukturwandel des Eigentums und wird gefördert durch die Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft DFG unter der Fördernummer SFB TRR 294-1-424638267.